Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Working With Humans. My name is Matt Phelan and my guest is... Minter Dial. Uh, welcome Minter, how are you? Great, thanks for having me on the show Matt. Um, thanks for coming on Minter. I feel, um, I feel a lot of pressure because this is a, this is a podcast host of 10 years, being interviewed by a podcast, podcast host of one, of one year. Does it annoy you Minter that everyone suddenly got into podcasting? Not at all, au contraire. <laughs> In fact, I, I wrote a post couple of weeks ago about how to start your own podcast i've been on this bandwagon for a long time and 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 one of the fun things about having been in it from the beginning is you're you're a tribe and you're trying to proselytize even the idea of podcasting and in these times why not help each other out oh i love it uh, I, I expected nothing else from you minter and um without reading that um blog post what what are the top two what are your top two tips well the let's say i think the first one is why are you trying to do it what is your objective? Um, and, and within that, think about how you're going to be satisfied or not. Because if you're doing it to have millions of people track every dulcet word coming out of your golden voice, then <laughs> you might be disappointed. So consider that why. And then second of all, then think through strategically what you're going to be doing. So in other words, do you want to do it weekly? Do you want to do it monthly? Do you want to do it with guests? Do you want to do a long, short form? Think through all these formats before you get into it. Because in the end of the day, uh, you can obviously think of it just as a short-term burst. But um, if you want it to be successful, you, there's only way is to have a long-term approach to the whole thing. So therefore, be strategic. I oh, love it, Minta. And um, let's let's go into our why then. Um, sure. So, why, so welcome to Working with Humans, everyone. The reason I record this podcast is because I just feel like I'm so privileged to do what, what I do um in my role and i get to travel the world um and i meet these just amazing people who turn up in my life um and minter turned up in my life about uh probably about seven months ago and so, so um a, a friend of both of ours basically said you need said to me you need to meet this guy minter um and of all places we met um in a bar in beijing i think it was wasn't it minter? a bar in beijing doesn't that sound like <laughs> the name of a film it does <laughs> so um yeah, I, I, the reason um, I was, I was, we're in season two, and I'd already, I'd hope to invite Minter on for season three. But I'll just give everyone the context. Um, Minter um, is writing um, about a really important subject of empathy, um, and at the moment, I thought I'd. My introduction to all of you on Minter is that I feel at the moment in the in the in the crisis that we're going through with COVID nineteen, on a on a small level. Um, you're starting to see things like joggers are complaining about um, walkers and walkers are, tra- are complaining about joggers um, on a small level. But then if I look at the macro context and think about that we met in, in Beijing, um, we have a business operation out there, is that what I found odd over the last of the reporting of this crisis is that... Um, when the story broke in China, people were obsessed with things like whether the Chinese were uh, lying about the numbers or not, or how quickly the hospital got built. But as soon as the story came to Europe, it was it was the personal stories. So I felt like there's a real importance to talk about empathy. And the person I know the most who knows about about empathy is Minter. Um, but Minter, before um, we get into the into that, could you um, introduce yourself and tell us about? Um, your career, what you've been up to, what motivates and inspires you, and however you want to introduce yourself. <laughs> well, let's say I, I, I've, I've fallen upon this 
notion of being an itinerant bohemian who likes to uncover stories. And I have, I'm so 55 years old, Matt. I have changed countries 15 times. I have lived, wow. uh, I've had 34 home addresses. I visited close to 100 countries in my life. I kind of get by in eight languages. And I have enjoyed the different media that are out there for crafting stories. And so within that, I've published a few books. I have produced a documentary film on the Second World War. And I've done infographics. I love to sing and play guitar and do songs and poetry. I've loved photography. I'm not great at any of these, but I love exploring all of them. Oh, wow. Uh, Minsk, can I just ask you something on the, on the languages? Sure. Um, when we, when we founded the Happiness Index, a lot of people that we spoke to in our industry in HR measured engagement. Um, but I remember meeting the um, creative director of um, Pixar. And, and, and he said to me, one of the reasons Pixar has been successful is because it, it only deals in global emotions. If you had to pick one of the eight languages that you can get by in, as you say, which I think is probably an underestimate, an understatement from you, um, is is there a language that's that's better at describing emotions, or or um, am I just being silly because I'm I can get by in about one and a half? Fun question. I I, I don't have a, a ready-made answer for that. What I can say is that the the bigger issue isn't the languages, but the individual, because it really takes tapping into your emotions in order to want to express them. I mean, let's say from an artistic standpoint, if you are a writer and all you're doing is writing about other people's emotions, let's say uh, the most florid, um, I probably, I would go with more like a French language um, or, or, or any of the romance languages. And why? Because they have less words as a whole within their vocabulary. In other words, they have uh, specifically for French, something around 80,000 words. English has 500,000. So the point then becomes is that in English, it's, it's a little bit more prosaic. It's a little bit more, um, let's say detailed. Whereas in French, you're allowed more imagery because you have to use less, you can only use less words. So I, I'm thinking that the, right. the chance of using a more imaged, more nuanced, uh, it sounds counterintuitive, but is through a, a more poetic, more abstract language somehow that allows for more imagery when you describe these emotions, whereas the English Anglo-Saxons are more precise and therefore it allows less room for Im imagination. Got you. So in terms of imagination, I'm in, I'm in my garden shed with my, my shaven, my recently shaven head. For those, it's a pretty um, picture, man. <laughs> and for those jealous people of the Minter would be in my top 10 guys of um, if I had to do of all the people I know guys and and rank them in who's got the best hair Minter would be in that um, and I'll go and when I, I just want to talk about your career just a bit of a segue into the fact that you work for L'Oreal as well um, could you just talk as um Tell us where you're, where you're recording from, Minter, and just talk us a little bit through your career. Right, so I'm sitting in my home and my office which has been the case for 10 years. Uh, I, I've, I have a small flat in Paris and I do the same thing there, which um, is, is, was quite a radical departure from my life previously. So um, I'm right now sitting in West Kensington um, and it's a lovely sunny day and I still hear the birds chirping, which is one of the things I love about London is the 
quantity of nature around you, despite being a huge urban conglomeration. So my career, so I, 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 I is rather long and and sordidly twisted, uh, Matt. But I started off. I started off with a. A diploma from university uh, in trilingual literature and a minor in women's studies. And with that, I packed my bags and I became, uh, I worked in an investment bank in New York. So uh, quite a, quite a jump. Um, I also at times practiced uh, tennis and I was a tennis teaching pro before that. And then after uh, another point, I started two entrepreneurial activities in my youth. Right off the investment bank, I, I started a travel agency for musicians and entertainers like Hunter S. Thompson, Madonna, and Sting. And, and wow. we also went into trying to produce a concert in Johannesburg in 1991, which was supposedly called the Peace Concert, but it was blacklisted by the British Musicians Union, actually, back in those days. I also started up a company for very expensive bags, travel bags called Gladstone bags, $5,000 minimum, um, that both of those failed. Worked in a zoo. I had to become a, a secretary. I uh, was a, after that with, in, I was in hock for $25,000 and I, you know, I'd say trimmed my sales. Then I uh, went to business school and in France at INSEAD. And then I went, uh, applied to two companies. The first replied and hired me before the second replied and that was l'oreal and so i ended up doing a 16-year career uh, in five countries for them uh, in the professional area which is dealing with hairdressers and uh, learned a thing or two about hair as a result uh, but that's not the reason why i might have long locks they just happen i may be blessed with jeans and i am so i ran i'm just je i'm just jealous Min, so that's the only reason i, I ran a company called redkin uh, which is a hairdressing uh, just for hairdressers shampoo and colors and so on. And then I ran their Canadian subsidiary for three and a half years. And in my last assignment at L'Oreal, I was on the worldwide executive committee. So the big board for the professional division and I had eight functions and um, yeah, doing lots of bureaucracy and corporate work. And 10 years ago, I left them, started up my own company. And now I, I write, I tell stories and I try to shift mindsets in elevating the debate. We love it, Vincent. And um, just quickly, a bit of a speed round. If, and these are going to be—I think these are going to be impossible for you to answer. But I'm going to—I'm going to force you Go. to pick one on yep. each one. Um, if you—if you could only live in either the USA or UK, which UK. Would you pick? If, do you prefer writing or reading? Writing. Uh, do you prefer history, history or geography? Cool. Okay, so, Minter. Also, I just re uh, LinkedIn stalked you and I found something really interesting um you'd you'd written um future proof uh, you'd written on future proof how to get your business ready for the next disruption um 2017 it seems like that's a pretty topical thing to bring up with you and, and you mentioned on the pre-call that you'd actually just republished or put something out on this again this morning, seeing what we're going through. Could do you think it's worth just touching on that a bit about what about what you'd written? Right. About so there? the book uh, published by Pearson was called Future Proof: How to Get Yourself Ready for the Next Disruption. And little did I know that this was the disruption that I was talking about. At the time, Caleb, my co-author, and I were really looking at the ideas of how technologies were disrupting. And now it seems like technologies are helping us through the disruption, and and yet. I, I really profoundly feel that it was actually on the right track. 
in terms of its positioning with regard to dealing with the disruption of technology, because the first three chapters did nothing to do with technology. The first chapter actually is, is entitled Meaningfulness. And it, it, it just hit me like a brick wall, how this time we're all in isolation and confinement in a shared experience around the world. And while I, my, the subject of my blog post this morning was about time and how it's shifted our appreciation and experience of time, we, we now, for the most part, are kind of having to think about ourselves. And, and, and in this situation, we're, we're maybe asking questions like, why have I been doing what I've been doing? Maybe in the future, how am I going to be different? And, and I think the focus is on being, because right now, basically, none of us is doing anything anymore. You, you don't go to the uh, football match. You, you don't, there's nothing to do. You don't go shopping. You can't go to the cinema. All you're doing is sitting around and being with your family, with yourself. And, and it's making us focus on what is meaningful in our lives. Yeah. And I mean, so it's taken something like this, this pandemic to, to for people to access that, right? Almost in a forced way. Mm. But let's say we, we fast forward two years um, and it's been, been as bad for the economy as, as, as we hope and all, and, all, and all that kind of stuff. Do you, is there a way that you can, can access that? that way of, of being and, and actually being in the moment more and not always being in the future and stuff like that? Or does it need a, a, another crisis? Are we going to need crises to That's be able a, to live like that? I love the point. So, um, Matt, I've, um, so my next book, which the manuscript is finished, we're just hoping to wait for this crisis to be over to come up with the publishing date, but it's about leadership. You lead by Kogan Page. Excuse me. And... Um, I write about how I came across my purpose and when I woke up to this notion of meaningfulness, because I didn't have it all my life. like It was some prescribed idea. And it, it took for me a, a sea change moment, a life changing moment. So this, my moment was when I was in my office in New York running Redkin Worldwide. So roughly $400 million brand at the time. And we, uh, I was had this corner office and I turned over my shoulder on this beautiful Tuesday morning, much like this morning, and I saw an enormous explosion in a building downtown. It was the Twin Tower, North Tower. And uh, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And, and I called in my assistant, Marianne. I said, hey, Marianne, come in here. So she came in and, uh, and she immediately said, Minter, there's been a terrorist attack. Anyway, we, we've all been through that day. My experience was quite visceral for being there, for, for smelling what the smell was in the streets, for seeing the empty New York streets, and for having four friends uh, killed, and, and experiencing that in a very strong way. So it was a life-changing day for me. And yet, though, Matt, I didn't change overnight. So the, my point in my book is I'm talking about how, what is it that's going to stimulate that moment of get it? Ah, this is what life's about. And as you're younger, you're, you know, you're like impervious to anything. You're, you're perfect. You know, you're, you, you, you have, you're very egocentric, of course. That's where I was. And then all of a sudden, 
bang, uh-oh, you mean life's actually about more than just me, my money, and my status. And so yeah. I think that this event that we're going through reveals two things. One, a lot, a lot of people came into it with a lack of meaningfulness, just on the the chain and, and running through life and doing the the movements and and running, getting getting to work and doing all the things, but didn't have real meaningfulness. And the second thing is we're now yeah. with this extra time experiencing it. And I so I think that oftentimes it does take some kind of sea change moment. My hope in my book was to say, you don't need to have a sea change. Just listen to me, wake up. It's amazing the difference it takes. But yes, I do think that you need to have some kind of boost to you know, slap you and get you into it. Yeah, and because it, it's interesting, isn't it? Like there's that, there's that being thing being doing the rounds, that sort of joke meme, isn't it? Which is who led your digital transformation? Was it A, the CEO, B, um, the marketing director, or C, COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, I've been thinking a lot about that. And a lot of, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, Vinter, are people leaders, HR people around the world. And I think that's something they'll be thinking about, which is how do you take people along these periodic, periodic journeys to help, help help transformation, not just of digital, but of, of the workforce as well. If I could just, um, tie, if I could just tie that idea yeah, up though, Matt is, so I, I don't think it was the CEO who's leading it any more than the HR, the CDO, the CTO, whoever, actually what I believe uh, was leading the change was the consumer, your client. And, and because there was a shift in balance of power, that's not 100%, but there's a shift. All of a sudden, people woke up to the idea, well, actually, the client's important. And what is their user experience? You've got all these technologies you can use differently. And, and then that kind of woke up and, and tends to be the way one leads digital transformation. However, I believe that's a short-sighted view of how to change. And and while some companies have gotten on and really figured out that the customer is important, B2B or B2C, uh, like Amazon, you know, which its mission is to be the most customer-centric company on this earth, which is great and it's fine and it's certainly done them well. But I think the bigger thing, which is why in some regards COVID is the right answer, is going to be the employee centricity. So I, I, I call it being employee first customer centricity. And because the people who deliver that customer centricity are your employees. And here's where COVID fits into it. The only way to have a sustainable discretionary energy, a higher discretionary energy by your employees is to have a purpose inscribed in your company. And a purpose I define as being something beyond your immediate ecosystem. In other words, your shareholders and your immediate community. And the bigger that purpose, the more long-term motivation you'll drive into your employees who are going to deliver the excellent customer service that's going to provide you the fantastic long-term profits. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, know this is, I didn't say I was going to ask this, but it's just something that, that came into my mind. And I'm going to ask it from two levels of sustainability, which is you're in West London right now. I'm in North London right now. It's never been a, a more beautiful time <laughs> to be in the city. Um, and you I, I sort of sit here and kind of part of me wishes every Tuesday and every Thursday was a work from home day because my children would be breathing better air and um, there's, a, there's a lot to be said um, for what's going on and also sustainability of our own businesses which is 
companies like Weatherspoons are seeing a real backlash um, at the moment about how they treated their staff. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think consumers are going to have much of a, a, a memory on this? Do you think it's going to impact how people buy out the other side of this? Well, not only do I think there is going to be an impact, I think it's going to be deep. And I worry actually how deep it will be, as in trauma, PTSD kind of things and and how we we will carry on different behaviors going forward. There will be a re- reflection always back to this period. And by the way, of course, who knows how long it will last this period. We, we, we may get out of confinement, but we may be all, you know, immediately in, in another month or two back in the same situation. And, and that yeah. bodes poorly overall. But I, I think that there's going to be there are a number of reasons why this will end up being the case. And, and one very pragmatic reason is that as we get out of this, all the companies, not Weatherspoons in particular, but all companies are going to be struggling and, and rushing to try to figure out how to recoup their losses back to a pre-COVID period. You know, that'll be the reference as boardrooms sit around. And, and of course, they're not going to be overexpending. At this point, they're going to be cutting costs and, and thinking about how they can pivot and, and be agile, more you know, agile than they were in the past, all these ideas that we were talking about in Future Proof with Caleb. But we're going to find out that this pleasantness that you're talking about, Matthew, being at home and, and then the lack of congestion and pollution and well, it turns out that a lot of companies are naturally, certainly not going to be able to afford to do a lot of the luxuries we had before because of reduced budgets, but also might also understand that, well, actually, it's not so bad. And wow, it's kind of nice not have to get dressed up and do two hours of sitting in traffic, going to commute. And wow, it actually works. And here's the, the real reason why this is going to happen, as opposed to something you read and, and everything is saying, oh, well, because it's not like it's a new topic, remote work. I mean, you know, all yeah. of us, we kind of know what it's about. I certainly do. And I've been talking about it with a lot of bosses. But these bosses have, whether for ego or habit, continue to think that, well, the only work that gets done, the only important work that gets done is at the office. Secondly, yeah. they don't actually have never thought of this. It's been very abstract, this idea of working from home. So all of a sudden, you've got CEOs, let's call the image being a generalization, some 60-year-old, mid-60s man who wasn't brought up in the internet period, but is now at his office looking at the computer, Zoom, what is that? Zoom.us. And, oh, oh, I know how to mute myself. And, oh, wow, it's not that hard, actually. And so these these bosses around the world, don't they can't call the CTO, hey, fix my computer. They're actually having to do it. And the the notion of behavior change is when you're doing it. Just like wearing a mask, by the way, you know, Matt, when you and I were out in China, this was a long time ago, you always saw people wearing masks. I think we're going to have yeah. now a, a less, you know, a much greater appetite for wearing masks. And I certainly encourage it because not only does it stop you when you're sneezing, for right now, we're in the middle of the springtime. And for allergy sufferers like myself, wearing a mask means I come back and I don't have to rub my eyes. I, I, all of a sudden, yeah. I don't have the wheezing in my chest. And then another thing is that when I sneeze today, People look at me like with guns in their eyes. And yet I'm <laughs> suffering from hay fever. So zero yeah. sympathy is, is what's happening right now. Yeah. And so wearing masks will be another, I think, attribute behavior change that we'll see coming out of this. Yeah, because I remember my first trip, I remember my first trip to Japan 
and, and, and as a sort of a Western person, it, there were so many people wearing masks. That at first, it kind of freaks you out a little bit. But then when you speak to someone and they, and they tell you that the, they actually wear masks to protect you so they don't sneeze on you, you see it t- from a totally perspective. Um, which I think leads into the, the real reason for getting on is to talk about <laughs> empathy. Um, so I gave the context and why I, th- I think it was important. And even when I shared that this that my worry about, because we're both on WeChat, so we have friends in China and we see it slightly different. Um, and th- when I shared it with one of my friends, they, was th- they brought out a bit of research about, um, and for those that, that are listening that know that my children have, have a Jewish link um, in their history. Um, and they talked about how sometimes humans find it hard to be empathetic with, with large groups of people. Um, that may be different or look different to themselves. But the, the link that I just wanted to make was with the boss there about how the boss who hadn't worked from home before, who suddenly works from home, who now understands it. Um, do you think, what is it that drove you to, to, to being, I, I, obsessed is the wrong word, but being so interested in empathy? And what do you think we business people need and why they need to understand it? Yeah, so um, I'd say my interest in empathy began in earnest uh, when I was working at Redken for L'Oreal. L'Oreal as a company cannot be given as a key attribute, empathy. But within Redken, uh, what I experienced was an extraordinary power, extraordinarily powerful team of educators because you have to educate the hairdresser on how to use products and so on. And that group really was divinely empathic. And it showed me the power of empathy in education. And then from there, I started thinking about it, empathy within the workforce as an executive, how do you manage your team and thinking through the diversity of people in my teams. You know, I was in New York at the time, so I, I can I'm proudly say that I had a, a rather diverse team um, of all varieties, whether it's gender, sexuality, or, or um, race, and so on, and uh, and you know, I was practicing it as best I can, but it wasn't like in an academic manner. It was really very practical. The reason I ended up writing the book, uh, Artificial Empathy, was actually uh, from a kind of a realization that I could do better at being empathic, and so I wanted to study exactly what is. What made you read? What made you well? So the the exact story is that um, I lost my best friend who who killed himself, and I spent the last six weeks of his life uh, pretty much daily interacting with him about this, and and the exercise was deeply painful, and and not successful, and it it made me think more profoundly. So Philippe. Um, uh, is, was a black man who lived in a very tougher part of Paris, in what's called the Quatre-Treize, the 93 on the east side of Paris, more northeast. And um, and it was a it was a very tragic event. Anyway, that kind of woke me up to this. Well, how can I how can I become more empathic? And so I went in and did a bunch of study and interviews, and and I met a lot of true empathy experts with PhDs and the like. Who have been spent their year, their lives dedicated to exactly this topic, and I can't say I'm anywhere near them. But what I wanted to do was put that down and think about how can one create more empathy in an organization, build more empathic leaders. Because, by the way, it's absolutely fundamentally powerful for bottom line results. 
so you know i'm a practical guy so i don't want to do hairy fairy just nice loosey-goosey stuff i want it to be make it extremely real and and that's really my story yeah then go into that bit where you made the link between people seeing it as because we have the same challenge with happiness where sometimes at first people kind of think it's a bit fluffy but the more they understand it the more that they understand it from a business perspective have you got any any flavor on why any more flavor on why you think it's so important for actual bottom line business well yes i mean there there's actually plenty of surveys that have showed it um, whether it's belinda palmer's uh, survey that shows how empathy is good for stock performance uh, you know can be correlated with stock performance there's um, plenty of evidence to show how when you're doing design, empathy is a key attribute. So people designing things like websites or user experiences or, or you know, architecture, empathy is an absolutely key attribute. Then, um, so if design is important to you, yeah, you know, want to up your game in terms of, of uh, empathy. If you, if you want to be innovative uh, and, and uh, use a diverse group of people to come up with great ideas, being empathic first with a diverse group, and secondly, with the people for whom you're innovating, then you will find much stronger ideas. And, and lastly, really, as far as I think the, the idea of sustainable advantage, competitive advantage, is having a truly motivated team. And the only way to really do that on a long-term basis uh, with authenticity is being empathic and, and, and showing your own vulnerability within that. So they're actually the empathy is not the end all it's not the one solution for all uh, because it's it, it's hard to do and i don't subscribe to having the tyranny of empathy and being 100 percent empathic all the time but applied empathy within uh, a business organization uh, which suggests a lot more listening to people and a lot more taking off the ego you, you being more present you'll end up with a far greater yeah. Uh, set of people around you, you'll feel more in touch with yourself as an individual. And that's a, a, a not a small benefit, especially in these parts of the days. And, and I think uh, it just flows through. It doesn't happen overnight. And by the way, you know, it's much harder to create a culture of empathy than it is to destroy it. And, and so just like trust and so many of the other humanity things or happiness, you don't just sort of build up happiness overnight. Yeah, uh, I mean, so that's, uh, yeah, I wish we had more time to <laughs> just keep going into that bit. Um, but I know you have a call at 12.29, so um, I'm going to move Go forward for into the end bit. But thank you for sharing us on the empathy bit. I think everyone that's listening is, is going to take a lot from that, Minta. Um, so the final three questions, uh, they're, they're quick or as long as um, you want to put it. But uh, summary point, biggest low in your career? Biggest low in my career. Hmm. Well, the one that really comes out was when I was in my office in Washington, D.C., running this company. We had uh, something like 14 employees, and uh, the there was a heavy knock on the door, and it was the feds, uh, the federal uh, military people coming in to uh, close down my company. I think that was the, the low point. And that feeling of responsibility for the individuals in the team, and and of course the the deep embarrassment of having to say I completely failed. Yeah, I think that that's uh, that was the biggest one for me. Um, highest moment mm -hmm. in your career? 
Well, I don't, I don't know if it was the highest, but it was a the most powerful one. It was when I was, um, I, I had to, I'm the CEO of L'Oreal when I was running Redken after 2001, 9-11. He called me and he essentially mandated that I come to Paris. And uh, this was on the 13th of September, 2001. And there were no planes flying, of course. And he ended up hiring a his own personal plane jet. And I ended up flying essentially alone uh, with one other person across to Paris and then delivering on the morning of the 18th of September a speech to 500 of the top employees of L'Oreal managers and you big swingers. Wow. And there I was, a speech that was supposed to be delivered by 12 and a half, a 12, <laughs> a, it was a two and a half hour speech delivered by 12 people. I ended, And I was bookended by me. I had to deliver the entire speech. So I, I cut it down to about two hours and delivered that speech. And I can't say it was the most brilliant speech because it was very hard. I had to learn everything. I had to adapt it. And and I had my four friends in New York and my wife and two kids. And my wife was in the hospital. And I mean, you know, it was a it was a pretty crazy week. But it, it was a day where I felt uh, more meaningful because rather than just talk about the products and how great our shampoos were, I I I insisted on the human story. And and that's what was great about that brand. I really felt align deeply with what this brand stood for our mission was earn a better living yeah sure make money live a better life and it was that moment where i really switched on to this idea that running a corporation can have a much bigger intention and impact than just pleasing the shareholder yeah been so that's amazing um i always leave the last the last word to my guest but before i do that i just want to say thank you um for coming on at short notice because this has been absolutely brilliant i wish this that we'd had two hours to listen to that speech and and do more on this but um thank you um i'm going to leave you to finish up um and close with the last uh, last question um which is uh, biggest learning in your career well I guess uh, I, I certainly, as I, I've been writing this, I wrote this new book, which come out in the end of the year, You Lead. Um, I think it's very simple uh, to, to be criticized bosses. It's really a hard thing to do. The, the, the thing that I kind of, let's say, grap grappled with was having a mentor and, and the idea of someone or some people who you can go to, to be vulnerable and share and feel inspired and learn from. And uh, what I determined was that no one person could fit that. I, I kind of split down my ideas and where I needed help and uh, complementary ideas and personalities. So I had it through a number of different people. And, and so I think having mentors continue to seek them, including the idea that and you know hard notion that you are not perfect which you know allows you to want to seek a mentor so as much as i was a big swinging dick running a you know big company and all that it was this idea of, of saying right well how can i improve myself and 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 who can be those kinds of people for me so i'm very lucky to have had some exceptional mentors i never called them mr mentor you know or mrs mentor <laughs> it they would be just 
fulfilling different elements uh, in my armory and helping me to grow as a person. So that was it. And then maybe just the other thing I'm going to say, Matt, you know, as we're going through this, this period, you know, as, as you were mentioning this idea of walkers and runners and how people are, are looking at each other differently, the, the notion of empathy is, is hardest when it comes to expressing it to strangers. It turns out it's also very difficult with people with whom you're close. There's a thing called the close communications bias, which makes it hard according to the baggage of the relationship that you have. But in, in tomorrow's world, where we will be walking down streets, getting into tubes and buses and, and the like with strangers, there's we're going to be carrying with us quite a cloak from this period. And so I'm inviting people to exercise not not you know closeness or anything silly in terms of physicality but just a self-awareness about how you are with with strangers and and not immediately imprint on them your fear your biases and generalizations and and wear a mask uh instead of walking five meters away from somebody else you don't need to do that i think that's silly but if you're wearing a mask and you're intelligent you also can be pleasant with your eyes and the eyes are so expressive we may not have our mouths covered i mean uh, exposed but through your eyes be, be gentle and be gentle with yourself and be gentle with others thank you minta i've My learned pleasure. so much <laughs>